sometimes following Jesus is easy, right? When people get baptized here and the room is packed with a thousand people who are for you, clapping and celebrating your decision. I remember when I was 15, being at a large Christian festival, and they said, um, anyone who wants to give their lives to Jesus, stand up. And my friend Luke, who we'd been praying for for years, who never made that decision, got up to the sound of 10,000 people clapping and applauding. Sometimes it's easy. When prayers have been answered, when you are casually walking in the shallows of crystal clear sea on a clear blue summer day and just quietly talking to Jesus, or enjoying the quiet morning in your favorite armchair with some nice coffee, reading this and talking to Jesus, maybe a little cinnamon bun on the side. But if you've been a Christian for any time, you'll know that it's not always like that. To follow Jesus at times is hard, uncomfortable, unpopular, and requires courage. We will at times find ourselves running against the grain, which, of course, is how you get splinters. At one extreme, we heard, uh, like we heard a couple of months ago in an interview with Open Doors, who work with people persecuted for their faith all around the world. Um, In some contexts, you follow Jesus at the risk of your life. But at the other extreme, far from having my life threatened or anything like that, I remember the courage it took as a teenager, having pornography literally pushed in my face, and the isolation and the teasing that followed as a result of refusing to look. Perhaps you've been in situations where making a decision to have integrity has cost you, where refusing to gossip has excluded you, where holding a conviction has made you unpopular. Or perhaps you've suffered and prayed and prayed and the issue still remains. Perhaps you've moved from hardship to hardship and it makes songs like, you're never gonna let me down, just hard to sing. Faith doesn't always look like a comfy armchair or 10,000 people applauding. So what about those moments where it doesn't feel like that verse we quote often, you know, in John where it says, Jesus came that we might have life and life in all its fullness. But instead, it feels hard, where there's a cost to following him. How do we stand firm? What about those moments? Well, that's the question that concerns the letter of 1 Peter. And we're going to spend the next five weeks or so looking at this letter. You'll find it towards the end of your Bible. It was written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who we read about in the Gospels. The same Peter who experienced the highs of being told by Jesus in one moment that he was the rock on which the church would be built but who in the very next moment, fresh with the confidence of his enhanced status, proceeds to put his foot in it and is rebuked by Jesus with the words, get behind me, Satan. He is, in the Gospels, a man of extremes. The first to confess Jesus and the first to deny him. The only one to both walk on the water and then sink beneath that same water. You know the guy. So that Peter wrote this letter around 30 years on from the time that they were walking around with Jesus. And he is most likely writing from Rome where he's eventually martyred. And by this point, the church has just exploded into life and there are churches scattered all over the Mediterranean. And Peter writes to a bunch of them in in a region called Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And the letter that we have here is that letter, the first of two that he writes. And there are two useful things to know about these churches to whom he writes. The first is that they were mainly made up of a sort of non-Jewish background, sort of Greek and Roman culture and religion. 
as their background. And secondly, they were experiencing hardship and persecution for their faith. The persecution wasn't as bad as it would get, but it was real and it was getting worse. So Peter writes to these churches, and we get clues as to why in the language used most frequently in the letter. The word pasco, which means to suffer, comes up regularly. The term anastrophe, which means way of life or conduct, behavior, comes up a lot too. As does the, the word agathopoieo, which is to do good. And so Peter, it seems, is very concerned with how they live as Christians in the midst of trouble and hardship and suffering, that they would keep on doing good even when it's not easy to do so. And the tone of the letter is quite urgent. One in three verses contain what's called an imperative verb, also known as sort of bossy verbs, right? So do this, do that. I drew my wife's attention to what I perceived to be a bossy verb the other day. Anyway, let's carry on. Um, <laughs> one commentary summarizes the letter in this way. The basic problem that Peter's addressing is living for God in the midst of a society ignorant of God. He wants to strengthen them to live for God in a society ignorant of, or we might say antagonistic to God. That's his goal, that's his aim in writing this letter. And whilst we don't face anything like the troubles that they did then, in the most part, we do live in a society that has broadly rejected faith. They increasingly views it with a degree of caution. Survey after survey show this thing. In fact, one I read, looked at this week, puts Church of England meaningful attendance at just 1.6% in the UK. It's pretty low. But we don't need surveys and statistics to tell us this stuff, right? I suspect that if you were to get the Bible out in your lunch cafeteria or a place of work, you may well feel uncomfortable. If you were to mention that the reason you're waiting until you're married before living with your fiancé was because you hold to a traditional Christian ethic around sexuality, you might feel uncomfortable, as might those around you. You know, the speed with which I work for a church, for me, can dissolve conversations and seemingly disappoint people is just very real for me. If we're to conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus, then we are likely to find that it is not always easy or always profitable in the immediate to do so. So I suspect if, you know, you were to enter, for example, the show The Apprentice, many of us have seen that, right? If you were to enter The Apprentice and do so refusing to gossip, making selfless decisions, and refusing to make monetary gain the sole and primary purpose of your life, then you would hear those words, you're fired. There will be times where living for Jesus is costly. And so Peter's goal in this letter, helping those Christians stand firm, as he writes in chapter five, stand firm. To help those Christians to live for God in a society ignorant of God is also pertinent to us today. So how does he do it? If that's his goal, then what's his method? And that's what we're gonna look at over these next five weeks or so. We've called the series, When the Going Gets Tough. Right? We all know the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But Peter doesn't tell them that. He doesn't say, trust in your own strength when it gets hard. He doesn't encourage them to muster their own strength. Instead, encourages them to look to Jesus. And so over the coming weeks, we're gonna look at how Peter seeks to help them stand firm when the going gets tough. And he does it by engaging with their perspective and their practice. Their perspective and their practice, the way they think and what they do. 
These two things weave their way through the letter, and we're going to look at how he encourages them to see purpose in their hardship in week two, how he encourages them to remember who they are in week three, how he exhorts them to live distinctively holy lives in week four and humble lives in week five. But this week, we're going to look at one massively important perspective with which he encourages them. And it's right there at the beginning, chapter one, verse three, if you want to read it. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. When the going gets tough, remember the hope you have. Hope right at the very start because hope really matters, particularly when things get difficult. Viktor Frankl was a neurologist and psychiatrist and a Jew. His 1946 book, Man's Search for Meaning, tells the story of his experience of years in Nazi concentration camps in Auschwitz and others, along with his professional reflections upon it. And in one place, he reflects how in the concentration camps, among the many, many horrors, it was noticed that there was a considerable spike in prisoner deaths in the week between Christmas Day 1944 and New Year 1945. Many prisoners, he writes, had held out for a Christmas liberation. And when Christmas came and went without that liberation, their hope and resilience faded, and with it, their ability to survive. It could be seen in the dark, cold, crowded sheds with every flicker of light as prisoners lit and smoked through whatever remaining bits of cigarettes they had managed to save. When one saw this, Frankel notes, you knew that man would not survive the week. He writes, the prisoner who had lost his faith in the future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. See, what and how we think about the future really matters. Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking US military officer to be held in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. He was imprisoned for eight years, tortured over 20 times without rights, release date, or certainty that he would survive. And when asked by a reporter years later, how did you survive? He said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story, the, de- the future. I never doubted that I would pre- prevail in the end. And when asked who didn't survive, he replied, the optimists, who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come and go, and they would die of a broken heart. You must never, he says, confuse, confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. You need both the hope of the future grounded in the reality of the present. What and how we think about the future really matters. In our culture, we don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about it. We plan, we save, but much of our focus is on the present. Everything is quick and immediate and now, but what both of these survivors say is that what and how we think about the future really does matter. Survival in the darkest moments depends on it. And you know, it actually sounds remarkably close to how the Bible talks about hope. Mostly when we talk about hope, it's synonymous with wishful thinking, you know, optimism. I hope it's sunny tomorrow, or I hope the interview goes well. Like, cross your fingers, you know, it could go either way. 
But when the Bible uses the language of hope, it has something totally different in mind. The Amplified Bible defines it this way, the confident expectation of coming good. The confident expectation of coming good. It's substantive, resilient. It's a confidence, a deeply held confidence about the future. The idea of something that is sure but just hasn't happened yet. In fact, the Hebrew word used actually means to wait. To hope in God is to wait on God. It's not, there's no doubt about um, what's hoped for. It's just a case of waiting for it. And it's a powerful thing, this sort of hope, as both stories show, because it affects how we live in the present. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, hope is about the future, but it is for the present. It's about the future, but it is for the present. And we need hope, particularly in challenging times, but not the fragile stuff of wishful thinking or vague optimism. The hope that, you know, we're scared to lean on it lest it break. What we need is robust hope. Hope that, as Admiral Stockdale said, can live alongside the brutal facts of your current reality. And Peter seeks to strengthen the churches to whom he writes. And in doing so, he begins right there with hope. He says this in 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." That's what he writes to them, living under Nero's rule, which became increasingly barbaric in its persecution of Christians. These were difficult times for the churches. And the way Peter encourages them, nearly 2,000 years before, Victor Frankl or Jim Stockdale published their observations, is almost exactly the way they recognize it needs to be done. In order to strengthen their resolve in the present, Peter writes to them of the future. He writes about hope, a living hope. And there are three Really important things to notice about this hope in this passage. And the first is this, that it's hope that is anchored in the past. Look again at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, it was Peter who had followed Jesus for three years, convinced that he was the Messiah, who had watched him feed the 5,000 with hardly anything, who had seen him calm the sea with a word and raise the dead with a command. But it was also Peter who had disowned Jesus as he was arrested by the Roman guards, who saw everything that they had been hoping in come crashing down as Jesus was humiliated and killed. Peter, who was confronted with the cold, concrete reality of the tomb, in which lay, buried along with Jesus' body, all of their hopes and expectations. But it was also Peter who in astonishment and wonder and fear met Jesus risen from the dead three days later, talked with him, touched him, ate with him, and had his whole paradigm shift as a result. He went from timid, fearful, denier of ever having known Jesus to bold leader of the early church, 
making speeches to thousands, enduring beatings and imprisonments, ignoring threats of the Jewish and Roman officials. You see, for Peter, if Jesus rose from the dead, if that really happened, then it meant that he, he is who he said he was, and they had believed him to be, that God really is for them, and death really is not the end. And so for Peter, there is just no doubt. He touched him. This hope that he's holding and speaking of in this letter isn't just wishful thinking or baseless optimism. It's grounded in an event in history. And he stakes his life on it being true. Jesus rose from the dead. And that can feel kind of strange to our ears. You know, if you tell your friend, I believe in someone who came back from the dead 2,000 years ago, it sounds a little strange, right? A little pre-modern, a bit superstitious. Like, you know, something from the Middle Ages, maybe. Have you ever had um, someone selling you something that they knock on the door and, you know, it's always when you're busy, right? It's always right in the middle of, for me, it's like sorting out the kids or feeding it, or they're having a tantrum, and this literally happened a few weeks ago, and you sort of, you get to the door, and I've kind of got, almost like got a kid under each arm, and there's food all over me and all over them, and I open the door, and the guy's like, is this a good time to talk? And I'm like, uh... Uh, can you not see the war zone I'm in? Um, anyway, I think he realized that it probably wasn't. Um, he's like, well, when might be a good time to talk to you about your internet, TV, and landline? And I'm like, when might be a good time to talk to me about my landline? Like, 30 years ago? <laughs> but it can feel like that, right? When, when might be a good time to talk to you about Jesus rising from the dead? Like, 500 years ago? We do science now. We're enlightened now. But actually, if you press it, it's remarkably robust. You should. If you haven't, you should explore it. It's remarkably robust. And the claim here is that it really, really happened. It's not a, it's not a metaphor. It's not the result of an unscientific worldview. The claim is that it happened. And that because of that, the best way to confront concern about the future is to look at the past. If you're worried when you're looking ahead, then look back. Because what he's saying is if Jesus did rise, if that happened, and only if that actually happened, then what Jesus says about the future is worth listening to, right? And what Jesus says is that if you trust in me, then heaven and hope and eternal life and joy are ahead of you. Which is the second thing to notice in this passage. The hope is anchored in the past, but it is about the future. Look at verse 4. It says this, he's born, he, uh, we've been born again to a living hope through resurrection Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter's painting this picture for them of this wonderful future that they cannot lose. And the language of inheritance is imagery from the Old Testament. In one of the most profound moments, God says to his people, I am your inheritance. This living hope, this unshakable certainty of one day seeing God face to face, of seeing him with our own eyes. It's the moment that all history is leading towards when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When he will make all things new, there'll be no sickness or death. 
Catholic theologian Karl Rahner puts it beautifully, in this life, all our symphonies are unfinished. There is a completeness yet to come that we must hold on to. And so Peter reminds them the prize and joy of heaven is ahead of you and it cannot be taken away. It won't perish. Don't ever stop thinking about that. Just this last Friday, we celebrated the life of Chris Bryan, a loved member of the church here. At the crematorium, we sang the song that we often sing here in the final verses. And on that day, when my strength is fading, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending, 10,000 years and then forevermore. See, that's the hope of heaven. A little while ago, there was a story of the Australian Andrew Chan who had been caught smuggling drugs into Indonesia, and he was sentenced to death. And in prison, he became a follower of Jesus and led others to Jesus as well. And one article puts it this way, despite protests from across the globe, the authorities decided to uphold the death penalties. But when the day came for them to face the firing squad, something extraordinary happened. The prisoners declined, to offer, declined the offer to wear blindfolds and instead stood and faced their executors. According to the witness, they recited the Lord's Prayer, embraced one another, and sang the song, Amazing Grace, before their voices were drowned out by the firing squad. And we know the lyrics to that song, right? The final verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. That's the hope of heaven. It's anchored in the past, but it is about the future. If our hope and confidence are in Jesus, then no matter what we face in life, beauty lies ahead of us. The author Frank Buckner puts it this way, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The third thing to notice is that this hope is for the present, for now, for today. Remember, Peter's purpose is to strengthen his readers in their present troubles. So look at verse six, he says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You know, they still have trouble, their circumstances haven't changed, but they also have joy, joy, is what past confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of heaven is producing in them in the present. Some of you might remember Andrew White, uh, the Bishop of Baghdad, standing here a few years ago. He'd lost many of his congregation to persecution amidst just awful um, trouble in Iraq. And I remember, uh, I remember it acutely, partly because it was one of those moments as a worship leader that you just dread, right? <laughs> he started singing a song that they sing in his church in Baghdad and that they'd been singing. And it's that song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in, you know the song, maybe. And um, he got us all involved, and everyone was singing. And then he said those words, could the worship leader come and help us? And I thought, oh, no, that's me. Um, so I got up on the stage and then spent the next five minutes just desperately trying and failing to work out what key we were in. If indeed we were in one key, I'm not convinced. But that's the song, joy, 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 that springs to mind in Baghdad in the midst of persecution. You're like, what? But there's more here too. It's not just that the future horizon is important to look at, but that the horizon itself 
has come near. This is the Christian hope. Notice in verse 8, in the NIV, it puts it this way. Though you have not seen him, you love him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving. Notice that tense. You are receiving the end result of your faith. It's present tense. Peter is saying this is not just future hope as a perspective, helping you hang on when it's hard, but actual present experience. And what this means is that because Jesus is alive, he has already begun to do what one day he will fully do. One day he will wipe away every tear, but he has already begun wiping them now. One day he will restore all things, but he is already restoring them now. One day we will see him face to face, but we can already know him now. We get to taste and experience now what we will one day know fully. When our littlest Nora, I've mentioned her before, was born super early at 25 weeks, she was just unbelievably fragile and in an incubator with wires going in and out, just so very fragile. And we used to pray for her and the other babies in that ward too, you know, babies just sort of clinging on to the fringe of life. And every night I would just sing into her incubator a song we often sing here. There is a sound I love to hear, the sound of the Savior's robe as he walks into the room. And I would just picture Jesus just walking between these incubators, filled with very vulnerable, very loved babies, clinging onto life, walking with gentleness and peace. And just imagine his robe just moving around the room. It was a song, and it was a prayer, and it was hope. It was hope in the God who will one day wipe away every tear, but who is also already doing it now. This living hope is yours, Peter says. It's yours as you struggle under Roman persecution. It's yours as you struggle in concentration camps, as you struggle with global pandemics. It's yours as you struggle to make sense of wars, as you struggle with the loss of those you love, as you seek to follow Jesus and it costs you in whatever way. It's yours as you wrestle with the heavy thing that only you face, as you stand firm in the middle of Baghdad, as you feel isolated in your pain, as you sit and sing to poorly babies. It's yours, this living hope. Our symphonies are unfinished, but they are playing. When the going gets tough, there is something that can keep us singing. Some of the danger with what I've just said, though, is that, you know, the sort of joy, 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 that story, if we're not careful, it can sort of have a sort of almost like Lord of the Ringsy kind of victorious, heroic feel to it. You know, like singing through the pain. Like, if you know Lord of the Rings, it's a great moment where Aragorn makes a speech and he's like, there may come a day when strength and but it is not this day. And it's like this call to arms, you know, heroic moment. The danger is that we can have this picture of hope in our minds that looks like that. You know, perhaps for some it's like that, but truthfully, in my experience and, and many of ours, I suspect real hope in real despair feels less victorious and heroic than that. In 2011 in Japan, 
They saw the uh, tsunami that devastated much of the country's eastern coast, and it was just a huge disaster. But among the wreckage, and there was, um, there was this beaten-up piano that was found. The instrument had been engulfed by flood water, and it was badly damaged, but it was still basically in one piece. And a Japanese musician, mu- musician heard about the piano and went to find it. And he sits down at this wrecked instrument, this visual metaphor of the devastation that the previous weeks had wrought. What music could possibly emerge? And he presses the key, and the note is out of tune, it's weak, it's discordant, but it is also something beautiful and profound. Even after everything, that damaged, scarred piano still makes a sound. Real hope and real despair feels less heroic, less Hollywood, and more like that piano, where the sound is perhaps broken and out of tune, perhaps whispered, the barely audible song, the desperate psalm. You know, I wasn't singing with heroic confidence in the hospital. I was whispering, just clinging to something in my fragility and weakness, just clinging to something I believe to be true with all of my heart. That God was there, that he was for us. And whatever that meant and looked like, he was there. Those sorts of prayers, whispered, desperate prayers. The prayers that many of us will have prayed at some point over the years. The sorts of prayers that we read in the Psalms again and again the sorts of prayers that we find on the lips of Jesus on the cross, those sorts of prayers, though perhaps out of tune and uttered with little strength, are the very beautiful sounds of hope. And so Peter writes to strengthen and sustain the believers as they seek to live for God in a society ignorant of God to help strengthen when the going gets tough. And he begins by reminding them of the hope they have. And as we seek to follow Jesus, what, you know, when that means going against the grain and it costs us, which it will at times, or when we're struggling with everything on our plates and feel overwhelmed, as it will, he would remind us of the same. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and he's with you, working in you right now. And one day, he'll restore it all. This is the hope that you have. The symphony will one day complete. This is the hope that you have. It is sure and it is certain. So take heart, he would say. Stand firm. When the going gets tough, remember the hope that you have. Let's let's stand together.